together today with all of you. As you look around the room, you and I get to see God actively at work as we rest together. I'm really glad to be able to share some reflections on things that God has been teaching me. And I hope by God's Spirit that these thoughts will be of encouragement to you in your daily walk with Christ. The things I'm going to be sharing with you today are things with which I struggle. I must be honest with you and tell you that I do not fatigue well. I was raised to always push through, to power through whatever it was that I found myself in, no matter what it cost me or who it cost around me. And oftentimes, it took a toll on my spiritual health, my physical health, emotional health, and certainly, my family members can testify. So with that said, I'd like to invite you to turn in God's Word to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And I'll be reading the whole chapter for the sake of context, but we'll be focusing today specifically on verses 7 through 10. Before we do that, kids... I have your attention. So we're getting ready to do what, kids? We're getting ready to read what? God's Word. And what happens when God's Word is read? Does anybody know what happens when God's Word is read? This is the part where you say something back. What happens when? Yes, God speaks to you by His Spirit. God's Spirit promises to work when His Word is read. It does not return void. So as we read, I would challenge you to notice in your own heart and the hearts of others around you what God may be doing. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful and underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants, for the sake, Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may be also manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. 
For it is all for your sake, so that grace extends more and more people. It may increase with thanksgiving to the glory of God. So, we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, if it weren't for your goodness, we wouldn't, none of us would be here. And certainly, if it weren't for your goodness, uh, I shouldn't be standing up here. But we're grateful that you have called us out together to consider your word. Pray that you would help me to be clear and that you would help communicate by your spirit to our hearts the things that should encourage us to keep walking by faith. Thank you for Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. So I was in the second grade. Who here is going in the second grade this fall? Any second graders? All right, we got one, we got two, three, sweet, four. I was in the second grade. Brand new teacher at Faith Christian, High, uh, Faith Christian in Sparta, Illinois came to our school. Her name was Jan Cross, and she was a graduate of a place that I had never been to before, Covenant College. Yeah, it's really weird how God tells his stories. Anyway, I brought my brand new Mickey Mouse lunchbox, my Transformers backpack full of new supplies. I had a new pair of kangaroo shoes. They were blue, and they had Velcro on them, and they had that little zipper that you could put a penny in. This is the 80s, folks, 1982. Uh, my first morning, I was so excited because I still loved school. <laughs> After eating lunch, she told us uh, that she was going to read a story, so I was excited about that. And, and she each provided each of us a little carpet square that she had gotten from Sears Sampling. You know how they have the little square? So each of us got one, and we got to sit on it, and uh, that way we didn't offend our neighbor. And then it happened. The strangest thing, and she would repeat this every day. She said, we're going to be still and rest for 20 minutes on our little carpet square, and I'm going to dim the lights. My Finch sensibilities kicked in full force at this point, even as a second grader. I was born old. My splendid day had just taken a turn for the worst. I'm a big second grader. I don't need time to rest. And this idea of resting means that we're not getting good stuff done in school. I remember even thinking to myself, I'm going to go home and I'm going to tell my parents that this teacher is just wasting my time and get her in trouble. But you know what? Something happened by about week three to me. And I started seeing it happen to my classmates. I started looking forward to my carpet square time, to be able to rest. I went from despising the order and command to rest to learning the value of it. I came to look forward to it every day. No homework, no talking, just being still. I could cool down after recess 
and I could even dream about the possibilities of the rest of the day, even the rest of the week. This is a true story. Someone had insisted that I change. Someone who invited and even commanded me to start behaving differently, and it started shaping the way that my heart's attitude was inclined. Someone who was wiser than I, who knew that I needed rest. So you might be asking, what in the world does this have to do with 2 Corinthians 4? So I'm going to give you my conclusion up front. If we are united to Christ by faith, we learn to hear his voice, and we learn to respond gratefully to his command to be restful and to be still. And here's what happens. He mysteriously and actually gives rest through his appointed means, his word, his sacraments, and the prayers of his people, both spoken, sung, and silent. God gives rest. He actually gives it to us. You may say, Finch, do you actually believe this? Yes. I'm coming more and more to believe this. This is what Scripture teaches. It's not magic, but it is mysterious by God's Spirit. So hopefully we'll discover today and be reminded that God, who is rich in mercy, has this strange ability through the power of Christ's cross and his resurrection, even as Scott read in Ephesians, that he now exerts in his spirit. He can turn death into life. He can take brokenness and make it into beauty. He can take your weary heart and give you rest. That's how his blessing works. This is our triune God. So notice again, Paul in um, verses 7 through 10. He says, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair. We're persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. Notice with me in the text, if you were to take out the conjunction and the clause that is followed by it of all the but, okay, all the buts there, notice how it would read. The Apostle Paul would have said, we are afflicted, we are perplexed, we are persecuted, we are struck down, and we carry death in us all the time. Does that bring you great encouragement? Paul, that's not how you make the cell, man. (laughs) That's a heavy mission. Those things are downers. You might even think, as I have been tempted to think from time to time, well, it's the Apostle Paul. He's got superpowers. Of course he says that. Yeah, he's been in shipwrecks. He's been beaten. He still keeps on going. I mean, he's quite a guy. I'm not that guy. But notice that Paul, through the chapter 4, uses that crazy pronoun. He doesn't say, I have this spirit, or I have received this ministry of mercy, or I am persecuted. No, he uses what? We. We, we, we. Together, in the bonds of faith, 
hope, and love. Paul is saying that we together are united to Christ, and being united to Christ means that we suffer together. Just like we heard from Dr. Austin several weeks ago, our calling is not to waste the suffering because they are working God's good purposes in his kingdom and in our lives together. To be perfectly honest, one part of me understands this suffering thing. I, I get that God uses all things to accomplish his purposes, and I even get really irritated with God from time to time because I don't like the way that he's working in his world. Sorry to admit that to you, but that's how it happens. Maybe you're similar. The biggest hurdle for me when I read this text reminds me of Galatians 6, 9. Paul says there, do not grow weary of doing good. This seems to me in my own life to get to the heart of the issue. Suffering is often thrust on us, right? It's because of sin in general or because of someone else and occasionally, and of course, uh, because of my own foolishness. Suffering just is, but my struggle has to do with energy. Sustainable energy. Suffering, have you noticed, takes a lot of energy. And I grow fatigued because of it. And when I grow fatigued, I start to mistreat others around me. I don't suffer well. Some of you know that two weeks ago, I had the joy of injuring my lower back. And even last week, I sneezed in the shower and put something out of whack. Um, so actually, I rejoiced. Two days ago, I put on my own shoes by myself because I could reach down that far. Um, I was okay as long as I stood up straight or as I laid down, but not any twisting or anything like this. And it, trying to maneuver to put on my clothes took a lot longer. And if you, you could ask Jennifer, she kind of watched and said, <laughs> what do you try to do? Because um, it looked funny. I looked like an 87-year-old man trying to do it. But I would work up this sweat at just putting on my shoes because it took so much energy because it hurt. It also made me more prone, you can talk to my kids, to make me more upset more quickly. I even became more reclusive. I didn't want to go out because I felt like if I moved the wrong way, then it may hurt. I know that this injury, by the way, won't go away magically, and I have to learn to stretch and get readjusted uh, by the chiropractor and to learn to press on. But the issue is, can I do it without becoming embittered? or mopey, or aggressive, or in my case, feeling isolated. So what is God's remedy here? Well, it's us being together, hearing his word. It's you, as my brothers and sisters, coming to hear again of God's goodness, his enduring love, and his strength in the midst of our collected weaknesses. Think, look around the room and look at yourself. All of everybody's problems gathered in one place is where God gets his work done. It is here that I'm re-narrated for my good and God's glory, and it takes all of you by God's Spirit to help that process happen. We have the opportunity here 
to say with the saints of old and the saints gathered around the entire world in the name of Jesus to start saying things that our hearts don't naturally say. It is here that together you and I get to call out for help and we get to bear each other's burdens through intercession. It is here that we have the fellowship of forgiveness that we can reconcile with each other rather than fight. It's here that we have the freedom to move across social and economic boundaries because Jesus died for all of us. And it is here that you get to hear the marvelous words each week, you, you, you are forgiven. You belong to Jesus. And guess what? No one can take you away. Not even you. That's how strong his love is. That's what we get to do together. Now, historically and theologically, we refer to these astounding things that God does in the midst of his gathered people as the ordinary means of grace. It's the preaching and reading of his word, the sacraments of baptism, the Lord's table, the prayers of the saints, sung, spoken, or silent. These are the ordinary ways that God has chosen to fuel his people. Here's the fuel. You ready for this? Paul says grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. This is how God has chosen to relate to you. This is how he leads us in paths of righteousness for his namesake. This is how he restores our souls. This is how he changes Scott Finch from fighting fatigue to faithful fatigue. This, these means of grace not only fuel us, but they're intended to overfill our broken vessels, all those cracks and deformities, until it overflows in our lives into the lives of others, even as we heard the Duets talk about today. This is why, in part, the writer of Hebrews, as you recall, addressing people who are very much oppressed and certainly exhausted, he says to them, do not give up the gatherings of God's people as some are in the habit of doing. The writer knows that not weakly receiving these means of grace in the assembly of God, gathered in the name of Christ, under the submission of his word, it will be deadly to their attempts to serve faithfully and to not grow fatigued. They will be in danger of losing hope. Now think for a moment of how this type of gathering plays out in the lives of God's people. Um, so many of our voices in our world tell us, do more, be more. We even have some voices with regard to the Lord's Day that say, do what you want. Or, here are all the list of things that you should do. Check them off. That's not God's good gift and his design of shepherding your fatigue. Think about God's commands in general. Uh, you, many of you know I teach at Covenant College, and so I hear students in the hallways and in the classroom from time to time talking about God's commands as rules or moral platitudes. These are things that you aspire to be if you want to check off your little list and compare yourself to others. But what if God's commands actually reveal how he's designed us. What if stealing is not only wrong, 
but it's actually bad for my health. Meaning that I get more worn out if I spend time trying to steal or spiritually deficit or emotionally weighed down or socially awkward. What if avoiding adultery is not just a way of keeping your nose clean, but actually a way to understand how God has created humans to relate to each other and flourish? What if these commands are God's good gifts to not only live in harmony with those around you, but to live in harmony with you? And here's a thing that dawned on me about a couple weeks ago. I'm a slow learner. What if my disobedience actually wastes energy? By design. The good news is that God actually attaches promises to his commands. And like Abraham, he calls us to walk with him and trust that he will provide in the midst of the circumstance. As I'm getting older, I realize more and more of my limitations. I get tired or faster than I did 10 years ago. I also don't solve problems as quickly as I once did. And most frustrating is I make a lot more mistakes on the piano than I did 10 years ago. It's really irritating. And I figured out over the past few years that I have undercurrents of suspicion of God that I've long held concerning his ordinary means of grace. They just seem too ordinary for me. And I often know, oh, I know what to expect. At root level, I find myself not trusting him for his grace, certainly the way he decides to dispense it or distribute it. I even forget that this God is the good God of rest, even during the daytime and for me especially during the night. God can make me sleep better if he chooses to do. God can make my days more productive and more restful as I trust in him. Consider the, with me Jesus. Everybody ready? How many years was his ministry? Three. All right. Uh, so here are a few just kind of quick highlights. Uh, suffered a great deal, Jesus did, on a daily basis. Did he have a really uh, nice home to go home to every night? Sleep on a cushy bed? No, so sleep was an issue. Uh, great circumstances? Mm -mm. Crummy. How about solid friends? No. Twelve codependents, right? <laughs> and then myriads of people following him around. He knew also that he was going to die torturously, right? He knew it all the time. Now, my point is, if anybody should have been in a rush under stress to get as much possible done in three years' time, it would have been Jesus. After all, he was Messiah. He should have been working constantly to save, to preach, to heal in as many places with as many people as possible. Yet what do we find him doing? Even as a child, spending time in the synagogue being about his father's business. We find him getting up early to spend time with his heavenly father, which seems, in my mind, to be at enmity with sleep. We'd see Jesus taking naps when he could have been healing. 
Now, if you were Messiah, would you start taking naps? I don't know. Maybe that's something that I am not prone to do. My point is, notice that Jesus himself embraced the limitations of the design in his own routine of rest. Now, I know that Jesus is fully God, but yet he demonstrated what it looks like to rest in God's good provision. Rather than railing under providence, he rested in it. Rather than wasting energy, he looked to his Father as the source. So I'm finding out that worry, for me, also uh, expressing my frustrations, often lead me to be more exhausted. And I'm finding that disobedience has increased the tension that I feel in my own life and my family. I'm finding out that filling my mind with God's word actually helps me sleep better. And that his spirit promises to work in the midst of all of it. I think Jesus understood what the psalmist foreshadows and says, God, your commands, your law is sweeter than honey. And I think this is what the Apostle Paul gets in 2 Corinthians 4, 7 through 10. God deigns to call us his beloved, as the great Covenant College hymn says, and lets us rest beneath his wings. Where he's doing the work, and we get to ride along. Coming to this idea in my life of admitting that I really don't know how it is that God always communicates to me through wine and bread, rest. I'm not quite sure always how it is that God having a baptism and me witnessing it among God's people actually provides rest. And my Finch sensibilities, when I'm honest, don't quite understand how it is far better to be gathered with everybody in this room than anything else I could possibly think of. But God promises to show up. That's not an insult to you. It's more of a critique of me. God is at work as we rest in him by faith. And this is why Paul will say in Ephesians 3 that a, Paul will comp, uh, Paul, God will accomplish more than we can ask or imagine in his church. Not less, not even adequate, more. In closing, I must tell you that I often find myself fighting this fatigue rather than embracing it with faithfulness. I get exhausted at hearing the news. I'm deeply burdened for the saints that are persecuted around the globe, the ones in, like even in Nigeria, the thousands that lost their lives. Um, abortion, if I think on it too long, really bogs me down. Human trafficking. Uh, financial struggles, covenants uphill climb in the current educational market, our churches, our own churches' transitional tensions and growth, my own failings as a husband, as a dad, as a son, and as a brother. I could go on and on about these things, and, and I believe you could too. The question becomes my posture in the midst of them. Is my posture 
one of submission to God and one of dependence upon him. Because at the end of the day, like the Apostle Paul, God comes to us and says, trust me. Because my grace is made perfect in weakness. This is how we come to know that it is grace rather than us. Now, at some point in the conversation, you and I are going to say, but how, oh Lord, how? And God says, gather as my people. Look, listen, taste, touch, smell, and see that I am the good shepherd. He says to us, look at the birds of the air. I care for them. And Jesus promises, cast your cares on me because I care for you. Take my yoke on you and learn from me for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. All of these have this in common. The opened and outstretched arms of faith. Now, Coach Connor preached a couple, about a month ago, right? So I'm going to call out Coach Connor over here. So, Coach, when you work with your wide receivers, do you have them cross their arms as they run down the field? Why not? Can't catch the ball. Can't catch the ball. Can you imagine this? <laughs> when you watch wide receivers, they got their hands out ready to catch the ball. They're anticipating that the ball is going to come to them. And so they're waiting for it to receive it. And these are the open hands of faith that you're waiting on the Lord's day to receive grace. This is how God is attentive to you. He meets with you. He feeds you and he nourishes you. But not just you, us together. And this is what Isaiah calls waiting upon the Lord. He says that even youth shall faint and grow weary. Young men will fall down exhausted. But those who wait on the Lord, they will renew their strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not grow faint. So I have high blood pressure. I know, it's shocking. So last week I had to get my refills, which means I have to go to the doctor. And in the doctor's office, there's the CNN news. And then there's the time of waiting. So shockingly, my blood pressure keeps rising up. So when I end up in the doctor's office, she lectures me about how high my blood pressure is. And I say, yeah, but you had me out there for 45 minutes watching CNN. <laughs> what am I to say? So, these are all true stories. <laughs> waiting rooms. We hate them, right? I hate waiting. You can ask Jennifer. Waiting, wherever it is, I hate waiting. I wouldn't go to Disney World anymore because I hate waiting. And yet, that's what God calls me to do, is to learn to wait, to wait for what he has promised, to wait for the strength that he's going to give. And I'm called to wait with you.
we wait together. So brothers and sisters, let's not give up meeting together. Let's not be impatient. Let's wait on the Lord and let's make it our habit, just like Hebrews says, some are in the habit. Let's make it our habit to anticipate God communicating to us through his ordinary means. Let's yoke ourselves together to Christ so that these means of grace will communicate to us God's love, even as we experience fatigue together at Chattanooga Valley Press. We get to respond with sincere prayers, and we allow the grace and mercy that we have received to overflow into the rest of today and into the rest of the week and into the lives of the neighbors and the people with whom we come in contact. And so, like Psalm 134 says, this dwelling together, not in uniformity, this dwelling together in unity is like oil running down Aaron's quirky, gnarly beard. Notice that those whiskers aren't straight, right? They're, they look like they're a mess, but this oil runs down his beard, and it's like the Mount Hermon with the dew, that it brings rejuvenation in a way that absolutely nothing else can. God speaks to you and gives you rest in a way that nothing else can by design. I have one more illustration to share with you, and it's on the back of your bulletin. Coach Connor gave us some great football um, stories because he's a coach. I'm not. Uh, but I wrote this hymn a number of years ago, back in 2008, 10 years ago, as a way of trying to poetically sum up what I've been talking about today because I have struggled with fatigue for a while. And I'm going to demonstrate a little bit, I know it's unorthodox, on the piano for you here in a second. But let me give you a little bit of background. Uh, I was commissioned to write this hymn and was directed by the session to write it on the means of grace and what the Lord's Day, how it's a gift to us and how it's a gift to everyone around us. So I submitted it for uh, publishing. Thankfully, it's going to get published. It is published now this year. But I had to interact with the committee about it. The last two measures... These two measures down here, they wrote me back. They said, we really like your hymn, um, Scott, but we're struggling with the last two measures. You wrote it wrong. And it's not to convention. In fact, let me show you.
we have ways of finding it. But actually, God gives 